Oh, good morning, good morning. Uh, I don't know, uh, that, that Grinch reminds me of when I first became a Christian. My heart was really small, and I was like, what's happening, God? Why do I care about people now? And I was looking at my, uh, my daughter here asking, like, have you seen that one? She was like, no. Have you seen that one? No. Have you seen that one? Okay, so we're watching Marathon uh, Christmas movie, uh, but not the first hard, die hard one. You can't watch that one, sweetie, sorry. <clears throat> Unless there's a TV version, then maybe, but then it's like 35 minutes long, right? And you have no idea what's going on. All right, let's shout out this morning. What do we do? We love God and we love others. And what do we say? I love God and I love you. Uh, I I just wanted to, before I get started here on the sermon part, uh, last night we were at that Operation Christmas Child, and and I just want to thank uh, our Arrows person, which is uh, Sil and Arjun, uh, for setting that kind of stuff up where we get to help. So thank you guys. And Thank you for all of you who built a box. Uh, We dropped those boxes off that you guys built, and then we were able to uh, be part of, last night I think they were at 46,000 boxes packed the day that we were there uh, last night, and they were going to to Honduras and Ecuador. And so really fantastic, just this opportunity to go out and and help others and and be a blessing that way. So so thank you for providing that opportunity. Thank you, church, for uh, just being amazing in that kind of stuff. Last week, uh, I was going home with, uh, with our family, and uh, I don't know if you parents, the rest of you parents do this, but we almost always quiz our kids about uh, when they we used to be in elementary, what did you guys learn today, you know, this kind of stuff, and so not that we're checking up, but we are genuinely interested in, in uh, what's going on, and so last week, we were driving home, and my kids are good at the drill. Uh, now they all drive separately, except our daughter stuck with us, and so Kayla, uh, me, and mom, we're, we're driving in the car, and and I said, okay, Kayla, what, uh, what was the sermon about last week? Uh, this was that, that same day. So what was the, what was the sermon about? What did you get from it or whatever? And she's used to getting put on the spot, so it's not like, oh, you know, deer in the headlights. So, uh, but she said something interesting. She said, I'm not really sure what the point was, um, but uh, it was about Zechariah, and it was about these, uh, you know, uh, them getting excited for Jesus, this kind of stuff. And I thought it was really interesting because, in fact, uh, normally... When I speak, uh, the take-home point or what, what you're trying to draw on is like crystal clear. And uh, I, I didn't say it in that way last week, but she sort of, as she was telling about uh, Zechariah and they were getting excited about what was coming, and last week the point really was not about uh, a particular point, but was about a feeling, it was about the anticipation that was coming that uh, Mary felt and that uh, Zechariah and his wife felt that anticipation for, Christ, uh, for Christmas coming and, and that building anticipation. So it was more of a feeling than a point. And so I love that she, she pointed that out. And then I was like, hmm, I'll do a little better conveying that that's what I was attempting to do. So last week, in case you also were like, hmm, what was the point of last week? The point was uh, to, to walk with Zechariah and them to get this feeling of anticipation as Christmas is coming. And today also is going to be about a feeling. And that feeling is going to be confidence. Confidence that Jesus of Nazareth is indeed the Messiah. That the Christmas that we celebrate celebrate right now is in fact celebrated for the right Christ. See, Christmas is based on a single person and it's it's a person that was talked about all in the Old Testament that would come to save God's people. A Messiah or a Savior or a Christ, those are all the same word. But how do we know that we have the right Christ? I mean, this is a really important question. Especially nowadays, uh, uh, you look on, on, on YouTube, on any uh, situation, you go to news outlet, on any issue of our day, and there are a thousand, thousand different opinions. And a thousand, thousand people saying, this is what's true about the government. This is what's true about the virus. This is what's true about the 
immigration. This is what, and none of those things ever seem to match up. And so how do we know that we have the right Christ? How do we know he wasn't just some dude that showed up, had read his Old Testament, and then started to like, like fulfill the things just because he knew what they were? And this is an incredibly important question, and, and I, I think it's important for us, but, but it was critically important to the Jewish people at the time. I think uh, the best question to ask is, how would the Jewish people know that their Messiah had come? So for us, we, we look at the Christmas story, it's sort of something we've heard a whole bunch of times. But back in this time, if I'm a Jewish guy in the first century, how do I know that this Jesus is actually the Messiah that's been promised? And the answer to that question for every, every Jewish person is prophecy. The only way that they would know that they have the right Messiah, because during that time, I'm sure you can imagine, people would always come up and they'd claim to be the Messiah and I'm going to save Israel. And they would do it for power reasons. They would do it to become famous. They would do it for all sorts of other reasons. And none of those people, there were all, all sorts of false claims of Messiahship. And so the answer lies, though, how do you know you get the right one? The answer lies in prophecy. Now, I don't know about you, when you think about Christmas, if I said, what do you think about Christmas? I always say, Santa, red and gold and like uh, lights. And I, I don't ever shout out prophecy when I think about Christmas, right? That's not uh, the first thing that comes into our modern uh, uh, imagination as we think about Christmas. I don't even think it comes in like fifth, right? You guys, uh, when we say, what are your top five things at Christmas? How many has ever mentioned prophecy as one of their top five things? Top hundred, top thousand? I don't know if I have ever mentioned prophecy as part of my, my Christmas. I just, I just haven't really ever navigated it that way. But, but this is a vital strain. If you, so our birth narratives, we find them in Luke and Matthew. That's where we find all of the, uh, the, the information about uh, Jesus' birth, Bethlehem, all that kind of stuff is in, in Matthew and Luke. And, and if you read those uh, two books you'll see that, that they take up this course of prophecy and, and prophecy is saturated in their nativity narrative with all sorts of accounts and allusions to Old Testament prophecies fulfilled by the birth of Jesus. Now, there's a ton of other stuff. It's not just the birth narrative that we have in terms of prophecy. Now, there's all sorts of other prophecies that the Jews would be able to identify the Messiah with in terms of how his ministry would look, how would death, death and life would look, how his, you know, this kind of other stuff. So there's hundreds of prophecies that he fulfills throughout his life. But I would like to just look at a few of the prophecies that he fulfilled before his life began. So as he started his life here on earth or the birth uh, of Jesus and what we celebrate is Christmas. And so today we're going to explore a few of those fulfilled prophecies about the birth of Christ, uh, the Christ of Christmas. And I think it'll allow us to step into this season, not only with Christmas anticipation, but then today, hopefully after this, with a little bit of Christmas confidence, because it's, it's something substantial. Okay, so here we go. We're going to go over a few of the prophecies. The first is, comes from 2,000 years before Jesus, which is 2,000 years before us. So we're talking 4,000-year-old prophecy. God says something to Abram when he first calls him. This is before there's such a thing as a Jewish people even. That God didn't call a, a people uh, Israel. He called a person, Abram, and out of Abram created the nation of Israel. And so here's what God says to Abram, 2000 BC. Here's the prophecy to God to Abram. Genesis 12, 3 says, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all of the people on earth will be blessed through you. Okay, that's a sort of a vagueish prophecy. 
Here's the fulfillment of that prophecy in Jesus. In Luke 1 and 46, Mary says, after she uh, hears that she's going to bear God in human form, this Messiah, Mary says, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in my God, God, my Savior. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. And so immediately Mary jumps to, she gets this like, hey, this miracle is going to happen. She doesn't get Christmas feelings with Santa and Red. She says, oh my gosh, this is a, this is a prophecy. This is what God told Abraham 2,000 years ago, and she recognizes it immediately. Now, some people say that Jesus, uh, you know, knew the Old Testament and faked these kind of prophecies um, in order to present himself as the Messiah and gain power and that sort of stuff. And, but, but all the prophecies that we're going to see today happen prior to Jesus. He can't manufacture the fact that he's born from Abraham's line, right? Nobody here picked, like, uh, what ethnicity you were going to be born as. You just got that. That's what God assigned you. And so you can't... Uh, so if uh, the prophet was supposed to be... Um, uh, tall, handsome, and dark, then that's not going to be me for sure, right? So, um, uh, as I qualify for only two of the three. Um, and so, uh, you can't manufacture those things that you're born with. So, Mary responds to this prospect of bearing God's son. <laughs> are you thinking one of three? Or what are you thinking? More like... Which two? <laughs> which two? Uh, yeah, okay. Um, so not a Jewish scholar uh, finding the correct prophet from, I mean, the pro- correct Messiah from, from prophecy. So Mary responds to this prospect of bearing God's son by, by recalling God's promise. So it's really important that we key in on this. She, she isn't just like, oh my gosh, what the heck is happening? She's like, oh, I actually understand what's happening because God said this would happen before and now this is the fulfillment of that. So she's the first person in the world. Mary's got a cool position. The first person in the world to meet the Messiah of Abraham's line is going to be Jesus, and she's going to give birth to him, and she's going to get to be the first person to meet him, the one through whom all nations are going to be blessed. And you're like, well, that one was pretty vague. But the Bible's actually a little bit more specific. Specifically, the God, say, God says, uh, not only will the Messiah come from the line of Abraham, so he'll be a Jewish person, but in fact, he'll come from a subgroup of that, the line of David. Uh, here's the prophecy God says to David. Uh, so, uh, this is God to David, and it's recorded in 2 Samuel 7. When your days are over and, the, and, and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I'll establish his kingdom. He's the one who will build my ha- uh, a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so it's interesting, as uh, you look back and you study a little bit about this, you'll realize uh, David's kingdom lasts one generation. His son, uh, Solomon, jacked it up after him, the kingdom split up into a bunch of different uh, kingdoms. And so um, that's not what this prophecy was to David. God was talking about something permanent and lasting. And uh, we see that fulfillment in Matthew. Matthew records this about Jesus. Here's the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so uh, Jesus' genealogy is listed, that he falls under the right Line. Samuel writes this a thousand years before Jesus is born, and Jesus can't fake his ancestry. So even with a cursory reading of, of uh, the narratives of Jesus' birth, we see, we, we'll notice that the authors are convinced that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. 
See, prophecy is not superfluous, but necessary to the narrative. It's essential, providing the Jewish people confidence that they're following the right Messiah. So those were a couple of pretty general ones. Let's look at a really specific, interesting one. God says to the prophet Isaiah, he says, you want to see, know how to see the Messiah? There'll be a girl who never has sex and she has a baby. In Isaiah 7:14, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and we'll call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. It's fulfilled in Luke 131, when the angel shows up, talks to Mary, Gabriel says, uh, you'll conceive and give birth to a son and you're to call him Jesus. How's this to be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? I mean, what a random phrase. Can you imagine you're Isaiah and you're like getting a prophecy from the Lord and he's like, yeah, this is what the Messiah is going to look like. I come from a virgin. Now that's weird. Like, you know, he took bio one and so he knows where baby come from. And he's like, that's really random. That is, how, how would that even... B, why, why would that be a real, that, that's such a weird phrase, you know? And I know that you're skeptical uh, nowadays and you're like, well, how do we know she was a virgin? <laughs> you know, she's probably sneaking around. Or, like, that, very modern of you to think that. Congratulations. Uh, we're talking ancient Jewish time. Jesus lives in a city of like 80 people. He's born into this city. And uh, daughter sleeps in the bed with mom and dad until she's 13. That's when she gets married. So Jesus, uh, Mary's about 13 years old. You know, prior to maybe 10, 12, 11, 12, 13, it's not even possible. And so, so she was under lock and key at all times. At this time, a woman didn't wander around alone. They didn't go work alone. If they traveled, they always traveled with a relative, a male relative. She, was, she never spent any time alone. And she certainly was never alone with any boy. And in fact, there were probably only three or four boys that were generally near her age in her entire village. And so her dad was, he knows who they are, you know, like watching you, watching you, watching you, you know. You're not coming near my house. <laughs> and they prearranged their marriages. And so it's just not today's society. It would be pretty easy to know if your daughter was a virgin because she's under your care and, and uh, eyesight the entire, uh, her entirety of her life. And so this prophecy is pretty straightforward. It's literally physically impossible to have a baby without having sex. Uh, it can't be manufactured. You know, you're not like... Well, nowadays you're like, well, what about in vitro... To, this is 2,000 years ago. There's no in vitro, there's no cloning, there's no nothing. So for this to actually happen, it would be a miracle of the highest magnitude. And so that's another one of the signs. And so when this lady starts saying, hey, I, I'm a virgin, I'm going to have a birth, everyone's like, hmm, that's really weird. That's very interesting. Hmm, hmm. And it's not like one prophecy proves it, but if you have one, two, and three, then four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and you get this... You, you, you weigh the evidence. That's how we do in real life. Like, I never want you to be believers that are like, just have faith. The Bible never says to do that. It says to be, have discernment, to, to, to have judgment, test the spirits, see which ones are true. Christianity isn't about blind faith. It's about building a case. Is this the reality? I don't want to follow the wrong Messiah. And so I better be sure that I have the right one. And so this is part of why we do it, we, why prophecy is so important. So he isn't just Mary's supernaturally conceived son, but, but he has, is in fact going to be Yahweh God, God in human flesh. Here's the prophecy to Isaiah. Again, Isaiah is about 750 years before Jesus. This is in Isaiah 9. For us, a child is born, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. That's a very strange phrase for a Jewish man to, to say out. 
because Yahweh is Yahweh, and he's talking about mighty Yahweh, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, the greatness of his government, peace will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and be over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice, righteousness from that time on until forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And here's Gabriel's fulfillment talking to Mary. In Luke again, it says, You will conceive and give birth to a son. You are to call him Jesus. He will be great. And he will be called the Son of the Most High God. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. <clears throat> so this is the exact sort of exact language that Gabriel is speaking to Mary that, uh, that God spoke to, to Isaiah. So Gabriel referenced several prophecies that Mary would have been familiar with and includes the promise of King's, King David uh, via the prophet Nathan uh, in Samuel. He says another thing that one of the descendants would sit on the throne forever. And, and here it's Isaiah's prophecy most explicitly that, in fact, there would be a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father. And, that, and we're used to these like christian phrases like that. But this would not be what you would say of someone from the line of David. You wouldn't call someone the son of God. That would be to equate them with God. They can be a mighty king. They could be a supreme ruler, that kind of stuff. But they would never be called this God phrase. And immediately before Jesus' birth, Gabriel is telling Mary he is going to have these kind of titles. He's going to be called Wonderful God. He's going to be the most mighty. He is, in fact, God in human form. So the virgin birth is insane, but... But, but God-born, I would say, is insaner. See, having a ver- that, that's like one miracle, but God taking human form, this shows the level of, of, of love that God has for us, that He would condescend to take the form of a human being. I mean, we all know how finite we are, how fragile we are, how tiny we are in the, as a speck in this universe. And God says, I will condescend all the way to that. I will become like that speck in order to save those specks. That's how much God loves us. And we saw that that was going to happen 750 years before it actually happened. Then in terms of location, prophecy of God to Micah. Micah says, uh, God says to Micah, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you're small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. So not just a regular kind of person. And Luke uh, 2, here's the fulfillment of that. So Joseph went... Uh, up from the town of Nazareth to Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem to the town of David because he belonged to the house on the line of David. And he went there to register with Mary who was pledged to be married to him and they were expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son in Bethlehem. Micah is 700 years before Jesus was born and you're like, well, Bethlehem, well, that's probably pretty common, right? Yeah, Bethlehem is a city of about 500 people, maybe a 1,000, somewhere between there. Now, uh, all these people descend on, on it because it's the, uh, they're required to go back and register at their city, sort of like a, that Sturgis bike rally where 500,000 bikers come to a town of, I looked it up, Sturgis has about 6,800 people in that town, and 500,000 bikers show up. That, that's probably what it looked like. That's why there was n- no room in any of the guest house for, uh, for Mary because there were a lot of people there. And so they all kind of show back up at this tiny little place. Now, if you're going to manufacture it, you probably would say Jerusalem, the, the like hub of, of Israel. But no, nope, it's Bethlehem, this tiny 500-person village. Again, very specific and, and an unlikely birthplace for the Messiah. So God says, like, look, here's some of the parameters. Virgin birth, 
going to come from this really speck of a place. But also, oddly enough, he'll somehow come out of Egypt. Well, that's really weird. Egypt's a totally different country. Uh, God says to Hosea, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Well, this really interesting thing happens. After Jesus is born, Herod's trying to kill babies because he's worried about a, a king rising up. He heard the prophecies too. He's worried about it. And so uh, uh, Joseph gets up. He takes his child and his mother during the night, and they left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was uh, fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I call my son. Hosea is 750 years before Jesus is born. Now, on the surface, if you go back and you read that, the, the sort of connection appears tenuous, you know. Uh, Hosea's statement seems to be referring to Egypt coming up, I mean, uh, Israel coming up out of Egypt during the Exodus time. But Matthew is calling to mind this Old Testament uh, portrait as the Messiah being representative of Israel. So as the perfect Israelite who identifies with his people in their sins so he might deliver them. So just like Israel was delivered out of Egypt, so the Messiah is delivering people out of their sin. And so from this perspective, the Exodus picture of God calling and redeeming is a perfect picture of who Jesus is, uh, calling and redeeming his people. Um, God tells Isaiah that the Messiah won't come as a king. He's actually going to come as something much lower, which is not what you would expect if he's going to be the savior of the world, God's most high king. In fact, God says this to Isaiah, and it's recorded in 53. He was despised. He's rejected by mankind. He's a man of suffering. He's familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and, and he's actually someone who uh, people would regard with low esteem. The fulfillment of that is in Matthew 2. After they come out of Egypt, uh, they went and they lived in a town called Nazareth. So it was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Nazareth is another tiny farming community. It's, not even, it's by the Sea of Galilee, but right not even next to the sea. It's far off of the sea. It's another nothing place. These people would be considered what we would say like, uh, you know, like uh, um, Okies or something. I don't know. What, what you think of some like hick kind of person, that's what... Nazareth is this like rural place that nothing ever goes on. They're not highly esteemed. They're not well-educated. They're just regular folks. And, uh, and that's where Jesus comes from. Now, those are just a few of the, the, the birth narrative ones of Jesus. And the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy, it may not like really feel that festive, right? Right now you're not like, oh, I'm feeling really Christmassy right now. Um, it doesn't it may be evocative of any of our Christmas themes that we're used to or, or their Christmas story, but, but they're key to the Christmas story because they give us confidence that we have the right Christ of our Christmas. Matthew and Luke, they shower their, their nativity scenes and their nativity accounts with, with all these prophetic references. So I'd, I'd, I'd like to invite you to maybe just read those before uh, in Matthew and Luke. Some of the, just read through the narratives before we get to Christmas. That they felt that uh, all of the New Testament authors felt that prophecy was an indispensable part uh, of the nativity story, and I think with good reason. God has always spoken in real history to real people through actual events and real human lives. He's made promises to people and He's kept them, and you can check those things. He's called people to record those and remember them. See, God is not an obscure, our God is not an obscure deity of myth or legend, but, but God invites us to, 
look and see and taste and test and, and, and discover what is true. And he's not af- afraid of that. And like, are we sure we have the white one? How would we know about this? He isn't obscure or far off or myth. He's based in history. Was David really a person? Did Joseph and Mary actually exist? Was there a town of Bethlehem to be born in, in fact? We can check all of these things because God is not far off. God is actively involved intimately in our world, in actual human events and in our actual lives, you and I, every day. And I think in a post-Christian culture, which America finds itself in, before maybe 50 years ago, it would have been assumed that people just believe kind of the Bible or just believe in in Jesus of Christmas. But I think as our culture moves, sort of a post-Christian culture, I think it's important, uh, maybe even more vital than ever, to, to say that we have historical facts about the gospel, facts about Jesus' life, and those facts matter because it's important to figure out what's true and what's not true in a very confused world. So the Christmas story isn't just about having all the Christmas feels, which are, they're really fun. They're really good to have. I want you to have all the Christmas feels. I want you to have anticipation. I want you to to, to have joy and, and Christmas lights and all this kind of stuff. But it's not just about that. It isn't a matter of feelings solely or, or even primarily. It's about having confidence that God, who promised men and women long ago that He would send His Messiah to them and save them, to give them hope that He as has in fact done that. And so God delivered on those prophetic promises of, of place and, and time and moment and people group and lineage. And He, and he chose to do that at, at the time of His choosing through the birth of Jesus Christ. So we step into Christmas with confidence in our belief of Christ of Christmas, prophecies given and then prophecies fulfilled. So last week was anticipation, and this week is about confidence. And so I wonder what next week will be about. Tip you off right there. As we look forward to Christmas together. And so I hope that God is building in you an excitement, a confidence, a wonder, and then we're going to end with like a joyful time together as we get to that date of Christmas. So let's stand together and we're going to worship with anticipation and confidence this morning in the Christ of the coming Christmas. And so would you just stand with me as we close in a song. Mm-hmm.